Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name is Ellis Williams. We're recording this on a Wednesday from our downtown studio location. And I'm joined, as always, by fellow beat writers Dan Lobby and Mary Kay Cabot. My friends, how you two doing today? Uh, I'm good, Ellis. How are you? Doing well, doing well, man. Mary Kay? Yep, doing great. Just fresh off a little Miles Garrett news and just getting back into it after I went to Quebec City for four days. And uh, all kinds of things are happening. Canada, how Canada treat you? It was great. I would highly recommend a trip to Quebec City. It's absolutely amazing. I'm happy to hear that. And your daughter was able to spend time in Saratoga Springs before that. I know we're getting a little off topic here, but Saratoga is a special place to me. And she, she enjoyed that also, I heard. She did. She loved it on the way up. And she's going to. she loved it so much, she's going to stop there again on the way home. She fell in love with Saratoga Springs. That's, I'm so happy to hear that. I, I got to give you guys some pointers and some yeah. things to check out. I was just that, there over the weekend or two weekends ago. Um, it, it's an incredible city. Tough to describe unless you've been there, but uh, I'm, I'm glad she's she's finding some fun there. Um, but Mary Kay, as you said, we've got some some Miles Garrett news to get into. You know, just when we thought the Browns were going to give us a, a normal or a quiet week, if you will, uh, of course they won't. Uh, as we've been following, you know, this is what we expected. Miles Garrett would be reinstated at some point. We didn't know exactly when. So Mary Kay, I'm just going to pass it to you right away. Uh, Miles Garrett is back, reinstated in, for the 2020 season with the Cleveland Browns. How did we get to this point? Well, I found out on Monday, uh, right as I got off the plane from Quebec City through Toronto, uh, that he had met with Commissioner Roger Goodell. Now, if you guys remember, I talked to Roger Goodell at the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he would be meeting with Miles Garrett you know, within the next 60 days, and I figured it would probably be uh, sooner than later. So Miles went up there on Monday. Went to New York, had the meeting with Roger Goodell. He fulfilled all of his requirements. I, I think there were some things that he had to already do. I don't know if he has to continue doing counseling or anything like that, but he had to meet some conditions and satisfy the, the terms of his suspension before he was going to be allowed to be back into the league. So he's back in now. And I think a lot of the things that helped were the fact that uh, this was an aberration. It was out of character. This is not the Miles Garrett we've ever known, talked to, seen, or anything like that. In fact, next week he's heading out uh, to go on a trip to Tanzania as captain, NFL captain of the Water Boys. Uh, they bring water, drinking water, clean drinking water to the poor in East Africa. And Chris Long made him the captain of that. So he's heading off to do that. But that's more the miles that we know. And, uh, you know, so good for the Browns that he's back. They can kind of get back to building that defense around him. 
And, and you know, I think I think it all kind of played out the right way. It played out the, the way the NFL wanted it. Uh, it happened at kind of the perfect time for him, if you will, if there is a perfect time for that. You got your six game suspension. He basically missed the most of the second half of the season. Uh, I, I think it would have been excessive to take this into 2020, uh, especially because, like you said, this is an aberration with Miles. Now, on the field, he has had some incidents. He's had some. He's been fined multiple times. He's had some some roughing the quarterback hits, things like that. But this is obviously in a different category. Uh, but you know, I, I think this sort of all worked out. Uh, six games was enough for the NFL to send a message and they were able to kind of put this behind them now uh, before we head off to the combine and, and the new league year starts. Yeah. So as we said, what we expected, the situation seemed just so out of character for miles Garrett. And as you said, Dan, six games, put it behind us, but let's talk about miles Garrett going forward. Mary Kay, when it comes to his on-field play and his his behavior you know you saw signs of it especially early in this season with the unsportsmanlike penalties and the late hits the roughings is the league going to be having a, a sharper eye on him and how he carries himself on field and how do you think miles needs to go about handling himself as he begins this 2020 season now uh, yeah, I do think that that they will be laser focused on Miles Garrett and his on the field behavior after these types of incidents, which, of course, played out on national television as well. So the whole world saw this and probably thinks a certain way about Miles Garrett if you don't know him. And as you mentioned, uh, he did have a number of roughing penalties and things like that. So they will be watching very closely for all of that. The things that the thing that Miles can't do is he can't let it get into his head to the point where he can't play his brand of football. He has to strike the balance between being very aggressive, explosive, coming off the ball very, very quickly and aggressively, and yet not committing penalties, whether they be procedural penalties or uh, you know, or unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. He's got to make sure uh, that this doesn't rattle him. Now, he seems to me uh, to be a, a really smart, deep guy where he's not going to let that happen, but you never really know how you're going to respond to something like that until you get back out on the field and start playing. Yeah, and I, I think there's, you know, not all penalties are created equal necessarily. You know, like I think the more concerning thing would be you know, when he hit Delaney Walker after the play against Tennessee, right? That Those are the things that, that you've really got to keep an eye on. But, you know, I remember uh, Steve Wilkes said, I think a couple times during the season, you, you, you kind of live with the offsides a little bit because you know that you kind of know how Miles is. He can't do it over and over again, but, but you live with them a little. And also with Miles, you know, I asked him after the, I think it was the Jets game when he had the three, was it the three penalties? Mm-hmm. And I asked him, you know, is, is sort of getting fined kind of just the nature of the business, right? Like if you're going to be a pass rusher in the NFL, you're probably going to get fined a little bit because of the rules, because of how they call things. So, you know, even not not all of those penalties are created equal. There were a couple times where, uh, you know, the hit probably was late. There's other times where you get a guy's face mask and, and you get flagged for 15 yards for roughing the passer. So as a pass rusher, you just, just sort of have to live with some of those things. But it's the after-the-play stuff. It's when he hits Delaney Walker after a play. It's, of course, when he hits Mason Rudolph with his own helmet. He's got to be able to control those types of emotions because the other thing is not only the NFL. Is the NFL going to keep an eye on him? But guess what? All these tackles, these quarterbacks, he gets somebody on the ground. They're going to try and get him to react, and and he's got to be able to watch for that stuff. Well, I think, you know, if you guys remember – 
When Miles was coming out, there were guys like Warren Sapp, Booger McFarland, questioning if he had that dog in him. And then is, as, even as he moved through his first couple of years in the NFL, we had his defensive line coach. I talked to Clyde Simmons a couple of times about that, and he said the same thing uh, to me on two different occasions about Miles you know, needing to get more aggressive. Bruce Smith has talked about him uh, needing to be more explo- explosive and quicker off the ball. So I think a lot of this stuff kind of – Uh, got into his head. He wanted to be NFL Defensive Player of the Year. I think he wanted to jump off the page, make an impact, and all those kinds of things. I think for Miles, the best thing now uh, would be to, you know, kind of try to forget a little bit about some of those individual stats that he's going for, like NFL Defensive Player of the Year. I think that kind of wore on him this, this year. I think even in that game, he was frustrated because he couldn't get a sack. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Well, there was a play, a couple plays before the Rudolph, the, the helmet hit. Uh, I think it was Larry Ogunjobi beat him to a sack. Yes. And, you know, the game was over. It was, right. You know, it was, it's always kind of a race to the quarterback for these D linemen at that point. He kind of, if you rewatch the play, he kind of, you know, he didn't like throw his hands up in the air, but he kind of shrugged his shoulders and, and put his palms up for just like a split second, kind of like, ah, man, I was going to get him. You know, he, he was real close if Ogunjobi wouldn't have. Yes, absolutely. And at that time, he finished that game uh, fourth in the NFL with 10 sacks. So one each game at that time. And he knew that he needed to keep up that pace if he was going to win the sack title and potentially NFL Defensive Player of the Year. And I think he was just very, very frustrated. He takes on a lot of double teams. Obviously, there are some issues with the Browns not having enough of a pass rush anywhere else on their defense. And, you know, that's going to be an issue that they're going to have to address moving forward. Uh, But I think some of that got into his head too much, just really wanting those individual stats. I think he has to forget about all that stuff and just go out on every single down and just be the absolute best player that he can possibly be and let the rest take care of itself. Yeah, Mary Kay, I think you're onto something there. When you know when life gets busy, things get out of control. We we may lose ourselves a little bit. Shrinking that scope tends to recenter and refocus us. And in Miles Garrett's case, if he plays the brand of football he's always played, the on-field results will likely take care of themselves. Now, what makes this case probably a little trickier, as we've been alluding to, is the chase for sacks, the chase for the sack title, defensive player of the year, because we see how pass rushers get paid in this league and of course he's a a guy with an expiring contract coming up that could be in line for a a big payday do either of you two have a feel about how this situation might affect a future payday or is this something where a, a 2020 season a typical you know an all pro 2020 season like he was in his second year could put a lot of this to bed and the extension will essentially take care of itself I think this is sort of a, a funny situation because he, you know he's extension eligible now. Uh, he's got technically two years left on his deal. He's got a fourth year, and then you know the Browns have a fifth year option. They they'll decide on it. Will most certainly pick up this off season. Uh, but the Browns might look at this and say, "I want to get a deal done now." Whereas right. Miles Garrett might look at this and say, eh, "Let's wait until Joey Bosa gets paid. <laughs> yeah. right? Let's let's wait till the market gets reset. I mean, the pass rush market gets reset every single time, just like the quarterback market. Every time one of these edge rushers gets paid, so Miles might be sitting there thinking, let 'Let's let another guy or two get paid and reset the market just a little bit more before I sign on the dotted line.' The Browns might look at it and say, "Let's get this done before the market resets a couple times.' So it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out this year. And I don't know, maybe Miles looks at it and says. I just want to get my big payday 
right away. I, I don't want to wait uh, a couple years for that. So, uh, you know, he's he's eligible now to sign an extension and negotiate an extension. I'm sure uh, that that'll come up at the combine when we talk to Andrew Barry uh, and, and Kevin Stefanski. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And if you do it now, you have to wonder, uh, would Miles Garrett be willing to take sort of a helmet swinging, indefinite <laughs> suspension, little discount yeah, on, on his yeah. on his deal? Uh, you know, he, he's coming off, he's heading into a time where he has to rehabilitate himself and get back in the good graces of the NFL and in the eyes of, of everyone. So uh, you almost have to wonder, would he be willing to do something now and kind of get that behind him. Not sure exactly how that's going to play out yet because uh, there are, again, a lot of different ways that you can approach it. But at the very least, they will pick up his fifth-year option and then go from there. Right, Mary Kay. And in addition to that, I think this may have timed out all right for Miles Garrett um, in a way to just naturally rebuild his reputation because with the, the new CBA looming, you know, there, there's potential lockout in 2021 looming, and Mary Kay, you would know much more about this than I, but not saying that's where this is headed, but with teams not knowing exactly what the cap will look like and figures going forward, there might be just a, you know, an organic reason to wait on all this from both sides. You know, the Brown side not knowing what the new deal will look like, and then Garrett wanting to wait knowing if he signs anything now, it's going to come at a helmet-swinging discount. As you said, yeah, it, it's hard to know. I mean, do you take uh, the tried and true thing and and you know take what you can get right now, or head into that uncertainty of the new CBA and what that might bring? So there are a lot of different philosophies and ways that you can approach this, and uh, and right now we don't know what either side is thinking. Yep. Uh, real quickly before uh, we switch topics, I want to ask you guys. Uh, I wrote about it earlier this morning, but. After seeing, look, all you all Browns fans and anyone who followed the Browns n- knew about Miles Garrett was what he brought to the Browns while he was on the field. As time goes on, and as you mentioned, you know guys like Warren Sapp, Booger McCarley, not saying that they have the dog in them. And I know we've even talked in circles where oh, you know Miles just kind of disappears at times, and you know he, he's a stat chaser but doesn't impact the game. Well. You take those first 10 games, the Browns' defense looked a lot different than it did in the final six. Uh, Just on rushing yards alone, I know in those last three games, the Browns allowed something like 645 yards rushing, which turned out to be, you know, 200 plus a game in just those final three games. And of course, uh, Steve Wilkes is not the Browns' defensive coordinator any longer, whether he would have lost that job if Miles Garrett was here or not. That's impossible to know. But losing Garrett, of course, didn't help. What I'm asking is, in his absence, did either of you gain uh, a newfound appreciation for Miles Garrett, or do you think he still has a lot to prove in 2020? I, I think. I mean, I've always had an appreciation for what he can do. I, I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever looked at Miles Garrett and thought, "Oh, that guy's a stat chaser." I, okay. I think we've seen the impact that he's been able to have, um, you know, through pressures, through you know, a lot of st- non-traditional stats, things like that. And of course, he was having a great season sack-wise. Uh, before the suspension, I, I think the one thing that I've always looked at with Miles Garrett is I just want to see a little, little tiny bit more. I, I want to see a couple more, uh, you know, almost Nick Bosa type games or, um, you know, 
when we've seen Jadavian Clowney wreck, you know, guys just who are able to wreck a football game. I don't know that we've seen that necessarily a ton from him. I remember a game against Pittsburgh, the tie against Pittsburgh. He kind of single-handedly brought the Browns back. Uh, you know, there was that infamous play in the 0-16 season when Carl Nassib essentially lined up in the backfield negating a, a, a strip sack touchdown by Garrett. Um, I, I just think that's the next step for him. You know, he's got the ability to impact a game and absolute, I mean, he causes havoc in the backfield. I mean, he destroys some of these left tackles sometimes and uh, his pressure numbers are unbelievable. His sack numbers again this year were, were, he was going to set the team record for sacks in a season this year. Uh, the next step now is, you know, again and again and again, just go out and, and wreck a football game and look back at two or three games in a season and say, Miles Garrett won that football game for the Browns. And, you know, when I look at the uh, last six games of the season without Miles Garrett, I think there were other reasons why the defense collapsed. One of them was Olivier Vernon was out as well. So you didn't have either of your two starting defensive ends, and you're basically taking all of your sacks off the field or most of your sacks off the field with those two guys out. That didn't help at all. Then you had guys like... Morgan Burnett out for the season. I mean, Morgan Burnett is a solid football player, uh, and, and he really helped a lot in the run. Uh, and it just seemed like they were down to nothing in terms of the safeties. Uh, you know, Eric Murray out. I mean, they, they just really were struggling in that regard. And, and by that point, Christian Kirksey was already out right. for the season. And, uh, you Jermaine, know, I don't. Jermaine Whitehead was gone. Jermaine Whitehead was gone. I mean, it, it was just a completely different defense than what they had at the beginning. So, yes, I think it hurt a lot that Miles was gone, but I think he was one of six things that went wrong with the defense by that point in the season, including the fact that the offense really sucked at that point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it doesn't help matters much for your defense when your offense isn't scoring any points. Yep, turnovers, uh, three and outs, and punts don't don't help your right. defense at all, and that was a, a large part of the Browns' and offense there. One, one thing I want to – I feel like sometimes when you talk about Miles Garrett, a lot of fans, you're not allowed to say, like, oh, I just want to see him – have a little bit more impact. You know, people come back and go, well, look at the the PFF stats and look at all the, like, I think we all acknowledge that he's uh, really good and that right. he is one of the best <laughs> defensive ends in the game. And we see the impact he has, you know, when he creates pressure and when he, you know, does things like that. It's just, you want to see that little bit more, you know, and, and it's in there and I think we're going to start seeing it. And I think we were starting to see it more consistently this season, but, you know, you can be critical and still acknowledge that he's he's a pretty good football player. Absolutely. And, and I think that we, like you said, Dan, we all agree with that. But I think when we think of uh, the Aaron Donalds, the J.J. Yeah. Watts, the Nick Bosa's, uh, we think of games that they have just completely dominated. And as you brought up before, we can remember maybe two of those games. Uh, but there needs to be more of those games where Miles Garrett just destroys the offense and makes it so that the offense cannot function. And there, there definitely needs to be more of that. Yeah, and he'll get every chance in 2020. Look, a lot of these awards, Defensive Player of the Year, MVP, uh, they're narrative storyline-driven awards, and there's no better storyline in sports than redemption, the second chance. Mm -hmm. And Miles Garrett's staring at that opportunity this upcoming season. 
Uh, cleaning up the rest of the news from the week over the weekend, uh, Browns coach Kevin Stefanski rounded out his staff, adding offensive assistant T.C. McCartney. Uh, he was last the Denver Broncos quarterback coach this past season working with Drew Locke, and they also hired a linebackers coach in Jason Tarver. He was Vandy's former defensive coordinator but has NFL experience. He was uh, the Oakland Raiders defensive coordinator in 2014, actually was on that staff and was the boss, as Dan uh, <laughs> shared with us before we, we got on, was the boss to uh, now the Browns' current defensive coordinator, Joe Woods. So as it is in the NFL, all these relationships are intertwined. Um, Mary Kay, if you could just just touch on these two ads and what it says about Stefanski now rounding out his staff. Well, let me start with T.C. McCartney. I think uh, this makes it so that they probably won't end up hiring a quarterbacks coach. They've got Kevin Stefanski, who has plenty of experience with quarterbacks. Then you've got Alex Van Pelt, who is a former NFL quarterback and has a ton of experience, 10 years coaching quarterbacks, and received really, really good reviews from Aaron Rodgers and from Andy Dalton. So I think Baker's going to be in good shape that way. Then you add in T.C. McCartney. Again, as you mentioned, he was the Denver quarterbacks coach, and in the last five games of the season he uh, was instrumental in helping rookie Drew Locke go four and one yep. down the stretch against some really good football teams too yeah people in Denver say and they may have found their franchise quarterback now and part of that work because of Locke's finish so that's encouraging to say the least yeah so I think uh, they're in good shape in terms of uh, really not needing to hire the quarterback's coach per se. Of course, the next thing that has to happen is Kevin Stefanski must decide if he's going to call plays or if Alex Van Pelt is going to do that. And I don't think he has to decide that right away. What they do have to do, however, they can't make the same mistake that Freddie Kitchens did last year. Freddie hired all these offensive guys last year, and he really wanted to be collaborative. That was Freddie's big word. And, uh, and we've even heard it with this regime. But, you know, Freddie wanted to be sort of the uh, anti what he felt was Hugh Jackson's my way or the highway philosophy. And he wanted it to be like, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and put an offense together. Well, it doesn't work that way. Somebody has to take the authority to say, this is what we're going to run. Yep. This is our scheme. And this is how it's going to be. And once you decide that's what it's going to be, which I would think that primarily it would be the Gary Kubiak sort of West Coast offense that they ran with the Vikings last year, or at least the closest facsimile of that, you know, then you can bring in some other ideas and some other philosophies, and you can add to it and build on it. But you can't have four guys sitting around a room trying to build an offense from the ground up. That's not going to work. There's no time to do that. Right. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Bring the Gary Kubiak offense here. Kevin Stefanski knows it. Run it. Get it rolling. I mean, even he can can put his own stamp on it, but none of this like, hey, let's you know, let's build on this and let's create the yeah. Cleveland Browns offense. No, 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 no time for that. OTAs are right around the corner. Yeah, I mean, you've got an offense. You, you hired a guy that brings an offense that, uh, you know, you mentioned the the Gary Kubiak stuff. You know, we just saw the 49ers run a similar offense that got them to the Super Bowl. Of course, the Vikings won a playoff game. You've got an offense that has been successful over and over and over again. You go back to 2014 here, if, if that's uh, if that's what Browns fans need to reference and, and what Kyle Shanahan did here. It's a, it's similar concepts, right? It's all that zone blocking. It's some of the West Coast concepts going all the way back to Mike Shanahan. You know, you've got that in place. So let Kevin Stefanski come in, put in that offense, and like you said, 
you know, kind of fine tune it with, with some of these other pieces and parts that, that some of these other guys can bring. Did, were, did you watch any of the, um, the Patrick Mahomes press conference, you guys, when he was talking about how Andy Reid installed the, uh, the spin play uh, yeah. that, that they got from the 1948 Rose Bowl. Yeah. And Patrick Mahomes was talking about how they installed it in their first week of OTAs last year. Right. And they, they, just, they just kept running it and running it and running it. And obviously when you see a play like that, and Dan, you wrote a post about the play. When you see a play like that, so beautifully orchestrated, like synchronized swimmers <laughs> in a pool, yep. um, when you see that, you know that that doesn't happen by accident and that they just didn't put it in the week before. They started running it the first week of OTAs. That's what's going to have to happen here. Not when we heard Baker Mayfield tell us four times at the end of last season that they weren't ready to go in OTAs and they wasted a bunch of time running things that they weren't going to come close to running during the season. Yeah, you, you, I imagine we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this come April and, and OTA time. But, uh, you know... That, that is sort of when you start, that gives, that's when you have time to sort of do stuff like that. And that's kind of when you prove as a, as a team, like, Hey, we're in this, like, we're going to show up and we're going to put in the work in April and May, and we're not going to wait till July. You know, we're in this to play next January and we're going to show up on April for the Browns. Again, they get to show up a couple weeks early. Uh, we're going to show up on April, whatever. And that's when our season starts. Our season doesn't start in July or September. It starts in April. And ideally, ideally, you will have most of the guys there uh, to be around to practice those plays. Now, obviously, Odell Beckham Jr. is coming off of his core muscle surgery, and it's probably going to take a while for him to fully recover from that. And he knows uh, that he cannot waste his body in April, and he probably won't even be ready to, to go full go when they start OTAs or the off-season program on April 6th, which is uh, before anybody else gets to start it that doesn't have a new head coach. So it might not be perfect, uh, but it should be better than last year. Most of their off-season and preseason last year uh, was installed without Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry. Now, hopefully Jarvis will be healthy this year, but I will tell you, when I talked to him at the Super Bowl, uh, you know, he did say something interesting. I said, are you relieved and happy uh, that that you didn't have the surgery. And he was like, basically something to the effect of, uh, I guess so. I, I hope it was the right decision, right? Yeah, that's tough. That rattled me a little bit <laughs> yeah. when he said that. Yep. Because it's too late now. If yeah. you, you know, you either had to get that done right after the season was over. Yep. Or you had to say, no, I'm going to try to do this another year like this. So hopefully he'll be okay. Um and, you know, hopefully everything will, be, will have gone really well with Odell's surgery. Those are tricky surgeries, those sports hernias, especially uh, when you're someone that has the speed like he does and relies on that kind of speed. It's different, you know, maybe for somebody that doesn't have to go flying down the field at a, you know, 4.3 speed. But uh, hopefully those guys will be around and be able to implement some of those and practice some of those plays. Yeah, bringing this back to McCartney real quick, I, I think his addition just mirrors well with what the Browns have been doing in terms of trying to support and get Baker Mayfield right. We laid out You laid out Van Pelt's experience with quarterbacks, and we talked about on the podcast before, he spent time in Tampa with Josh Freeman when Josh Freeman was only a second-year player at the time, and Freeman had a career year with the Bucks there. Then, as you said, with Aaron Rodgers, Stefanski's had success with everyone from Brett Favre to Case Keenum to Kirk Cousins. And as we said at the start, 
McCartney had sort of had a coming out party with Drew Locke, and now Denver fans think they have the guy of the future. So with those three guys spearheading the quarterback room, if you will, you have to think it bodes well for the future of Baker Mayfield. And at the very least, puts this really all on Baker now. You know, we've talked at great lengths and we'll continue to talk how year three is going to be pivotal for Baker. But right now it seems like the Browns have three smart adults in the room who are going to be efficient with their time. As you said, Mary Kay, there's not going to be wasting time in OTAs. You know, when you have that Ivy League background and specific quarterback work, you tend to be efficient with your schedule. And that's what I think the Browns have found here. And with the offensive with really the staff in general put together that allows us to look ahead to things like, you know, the upcoming roster decisions, uh, the combine in under two weeks, free agency starting on March 18th, I believe. So uh, with those three things being said and others looking ahead in the Brown schedule, what pops off the calendar for you guys and what are some, some dates and timeframes you think are, are important going forward? As I said, with the combine only 12 days away. I guess the combine's easy. I think we're so in this, like, what's next mode? Like, what's the next step? And, uh, you know, the, all this coaching search stuff is is pretty much put to bed. I think the combine is the easy answer. Uh, I'll jump one step beyond that, and I'll go the start of the new league year. I don't remember the exact date of that, um, but it's, you know, middle of March-ish. I think it I, is March 18th. 17th, 17th, 17th or 18th. 18th yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think the tampering period is the 15th, correct? 16th to 18th. Okay. okay. See, I, I should think. know that. That's how important that is to me, that I don't <laughs> even know the exact date. But that's really... You're right there. You know, well, that's when the, we'll kind of see, when Andrew Barry says he wants to be aggressive, we'll, we'll kind of get an idea of exactly how aggressive he wants to be mm-hmm. uh, in free agency because the Browns don't have the cap space they've had in the past, but they do still have a lot of money available to spend. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, in addition to the Combine, and they are, you know, heavy into draft meetings right now. That's basically what's going on in Berea. They're uh, simultaneously uh, examining all the free agent possibilities uh, and draft meetings and all of that. But they they do have some decisions to make on some of their existing players. There's a lot of money tied up in a lot of guys. And when Andrew Berry talks about being aggressive, I'm so very curious to see how that's going (laughs) to turn out. You know, I just wonder because we just watched at breakneck speed John Dorsey completely overhaul this entire roster in the last two years. And so I guess I just really wasn't thinking of Andrew coming in and being super aggressive, but he says he wants to be defined by aggression. So what does he have up his sleeve? I just can't wait to see. What does aggression mean for him versus what it meant for John Dorsey, right? Right. Because a couple years ago... Right when the league year started, it was, hey, the Browns just traded for Jarvis Landry. And then an hour later, oh, and now they traded for Terod Taylor. And, right. you know, they, they signed all these guys, you know, like the Chris Smiths and TJ Carries and Chris Hubbards right. and uh, some of these veteran guys. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, you fast forward a year and it's they traded for Odell Beckham. And, uh, you know, of course, they gave Jarvis Landry that extension right after they traded for him. So that was incredibly aggressive. That was right pedal to the floor aggressive and I don't know if Andrew Barry is going to be that aggressive but I, I think that's what I'm curious to find out yeah I mean there are only five players or five of the draft picks left on the roster from uh, those first two years when Andrew was here under Sashi Brown out of those 24 picks and that was just a small slice of of what John Dorsey did to completely 
overhaul this entire roster and turn the whole thing on its ear. So what what is Andrew going to do? I mean, I know there are certain players that we have talked about many, many times, like Olivier Vernon. I think we've all we can all agree they're not paying Olivier Vernon fifteen million dollars next no, year. No way. Not going to happen. <laughs> we have talked about it ad nauseum. Uh, you know. He, if he thinks he's getting that next year, he's kidding himself. So he's either going to be gone or he's going to take a severe pay cut. Uh, you know, when, it, when you look at, I mean, I think they're planning to move forward with Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. as is. But those guys, you know, they do have $27 million wrapped up in cap space just on those two guys alone. Uh, so, I mean, these are things that, that Andrew has to really try to figure out. And, you know, I added it up. 80 years of personnel experience walked out the door, okay? 80 years in John Dorsey, Elliot Wolf, Alonzo Highsmith, and Director of College Scouting, Steve Mullen. They walked out the door, and nobody's walking back in. So Andrew's got a lot on his plate right now trying to get this staff ready for the draft and free agency without a lot of really top-level executives it's a tall order for a first-time GM. Yeah, I think you two nailed that, that we're not going to figure this out, what he means by how aggressive he's going to be. And Mary Kay, as you're saying, what he has sorted out. Uh, until that, I looked it up, that March 18th date, uh, when the new league year begins, free agency begins, 2019 contracts expire, because uh, Mary Kay, on top of Olivier Vernon, you know, you keep wondering, is Joe Schobert coming back? What about Richard Higgins, David Njoku? These are a few names that, uh, until the Browns figure out what they're doing with their own roster, there's no way to tell how aggressive they'll be in free agency or on the trade market until they figure out what's going on in their own house either. So we'll we'll figure that out as the combine and the new league year creeps closer. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side of that break, we're going to get to your football insider questions. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome back to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. My name is Ellis Williams. I'm joined as always by fellow Browns beat writers Dan Lobby and Mary Kay Cabot. Have you ever wondered how you can get your questions on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast? For Mary Kay, myself, Dan, sometimes Scott Pasco, any one of us to answer? It's real simple. All you got to do is to subscribe to Football Insider by clicking the blue banner at the bottom of cleveland.com slash browns. Not only will you get your questions on this podcast, but you'll get exclusive texts from all four of us and our daily newsletter. Very simple, $3.99 a month. Sign up for Football Insider. Our first question from Fred in North Canton. He asks, what are the chances that the Browns will choose the best available player with their first round pick? Increased priority in analytics could point to this. Experts say that this is a deep draft for offensive tackles. Combine may highlight potential later round picks that could be available at offensive tackle. So essentially, Fred's asking, with this new front office here and analytics pushing towards the incentive of you know stockpiling picks rather than selecting high, could you guys see the Browns trading back, or how do you see the front office attacking this draft? You know, I think anything is on the table right now. I think that they will be willing to trade back some, if that makes sense to them. Uh, if they can trade down and get the, a player that they really love five picks later and pick up uh, some more draft picks, I think they would be open to doing that. Uh, I don't think that they're in the same boat as they were when they 
uh, when Andrew Berry was here under Sashi Brown the first year, when they really wanted to collect as many assets as possible and just try to keep stocking the team with bodies. Uh, I don't think they're in that position right now. So if they do find the offensive tackle that they want at number 10, then I think they'll you know, stay right there and take their guy. Uh, and maybe it won't even be an off- offensive tackle there, but I would have to think that it, it probably would be because if you can nail down that position for the next decade and find the heir to Joe Thomas, they really need to do that. Uh, you know, there are some other players that would warrant a top 10 pick, but uh, I think that, you know, if they stay true to their board and they've got an offensive tackle there, uh, that they probably stay right there at number 10 and pick that guy. Uh, yeah, this is sort of the age-old debate, right? Best player versus need. And, and maybe right. that's going to match up for the Browns when the number 10 pick rolls around. Maybe there's going to be a, a tackle that is the 10th best player in the draft or whatever. But, uh, you know, LSU wrote the a linebacker's post today, and you mentioned Isaiah Simmons. If he somehow is sitting there at number 10 and the Browns have, like, four left tackles, or not just left tackles, but four tackles they really like in the draft, yeah, maybe, maybe they can't pass that talent up. You know, I'm... I'm always a fan of taking the most talented player, the best player that's available, you know, with a few exceptions here and there, obviously, right? You're not going to take a quarterback <laughs> number 10, right, right. but you know, I always say take the best player. That, that's kind of how I've started to view things a little bit. I, I think there's a chance that maybe those two things could marry up for the Browns, but there's some interesting scenarios where they might not take a tackle at 10. Yeah. I think the Browns have a real interesting spot at number 10. You know, they're one of the few teams drafting high that, uh, are secure at quarterback for the most part, or at least not looking to select one in the first round, of course. And that essentially means the Browns can be flexible. Look, is the fan base potentially going to be upset if they don't take a tackle on day one? Sure, but tackle also isn't quarterback. If there's a plethora of offensive talent, then the market inefficiency would then say you can wait, as Fred in North Canton is alluding to. Dan, you nailed it there with bringing up Isaiah Simmons. He really is the one guy to watch in mocking all these drafts out. He goes anywhere between like pick three and four and then is there for the Browns at 10, If assuming he gets past Jacksonville at nine. He, he falls all over the place, but in watching his tape, he really projects, I wrote about him as a safety, I wrote about him as a linebacker, and that was on purpose because essentially he's a hybrid, he's a, a Jamal Adams type of player, who is not going to come off the field, can play on the edge, can play in coverage, can play in man, and can stop the run. So he's an exciting option and really would be the guy that Browns would be looking at instead of an offensive tackle. And that's where it just gets impossible to to predict. It's, it's a draft for a reason. You can mock it up as much as you want, but until these picks are made, the Browns aren't going to know how to react. They don't control the draft. They're reacting at 10, of course. So really, as Mary Kay said at the top of this, everything is on the table, but it's got to. You're assuming it's either offensive tackle or the best defensive player available, which would be Isaiah Simmons at that point. Now, if they go wide receiver at ten, then we really have something to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah, it was funny because uh, a reader asked me that same very posed that same very question to me: if Isaiah Simmons is available, uh, and this was a, in the Hay MKs in Sunday's paper and on online. Uh, what would they do? Isaiah Simmons versus one of these left tackles. And it is going to be a very big decision yep. because I feel like their defense is missing something. Yep. 
completely in, in terms of just that game changing defender right uh, somebody with uh you know, just the energy and the playmaking ability uh, to completely transform that defense. And he seems to me to be that kind of guy, uh, especially in today's game, where you have to have the versatility, like you said, to cover, to run, to blitz, uh, and do all the things that he would need to do. So uh, it would be very, very tempting. And um, it just depends on how far you can go back and still get a really, really good left tackle. Now, maybe by that point, they will have found somebody in another way. Yeah, and that's yep, and that's one thing that makes projecting the draft even more difficult. Mm-hmm. We don't know how this roster shakes up. We don't know how free agency uh, plays out. There's reports that now Trent Williams is working on rejoining mm-hmm. Washington now that there's a new regime right. and new front office. But is that a potential name that they could come back and circle the trade corner for? And with the price now, assuming being a bit lower. Again, these things are remain to be seen, but yes, Mary Kay, you're you're dead on about that. That Simmons is provides that type of X factor, mm-hmm. that disruptor that you can pair with Miles Garrett in a sound secondary and Greedy Williams and Denzel Ward. That could take this defense to the next level, uh, because defensively that is what they're missing. And we know that Garrett along with guys like Baker and OBJ are here for the future, which goes to our next question. This uh, person didn't feel like uh, leaving a name or where they're from, but that's fine. We still accept the question as is. Asking, uh, this one's on trades. This insider would like to know, it does not seem the new regime is going to trade OBJ, Miles Garrett, or Baker Mayfield, to which this person adds, which I would prefer in order to actually like this team again. (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah gotta love that but uh this person continues to ask are there any bold moves that you have heard may occur so you know this is just you know speculation but are there moves that could be looming that uh the browns may exercise or massage as you know not the start of the year but maybe as the trade deadline creeps up anything on your mind mary Kay? first of all how could you not like miles garrett if you're a fan yeah i don't know that one that one I don't get. I can understand maybe being kind of tired of the OBJ circus and uh, yeah, we'll see what Baker does. But how could you not like Miles Garrett? The guy likes dinosaurs. Yeah, but do you think that the helmet swinging incident changed that for people at all? Maybe. I think from the outside, probably. I think people that haven't followed him and aren't fans of But I mean, if you've been a Browns fan and you've watched him for the last three years, I th- like we said, we use the word aberration. Right. I don't know. I find that interesting. And we know that to be the case. But I just, I wonder, did right. that change yeah. him in the minds of some fans and some people? Yeah, Maybe that, not. Their approval rating might not be yeah. as high as we think now. No, it's a good point. Sounds anyway, like, back, to, back to the topic at Sounds the like end. a poll. <laughs> um, but in terms of... Um, the only the only one of these that would, I think, qualify for a big, huge, bold move that would knock us off our socks and that we that we're really not expecting to happen, and that would be OBJ. But after after talking to Jimmy Haslam at the last um, thing that we were at, he raved about OBJ, and I mean. He, in terms of Kareem Hunt, he he put Kareem on blast. Basically, we are not going to tolerate anything. You know, it was unacceptable what you did when you were stopped uh, by the police. But when it came to OBJ 
I mean, he raved about him and didn't seem bothered at all about the butt slap or anything. I mean, it was all about, you know, we think he's going to come back next year and produce in a big, big way. So I would be very shocked if they do anything with him. Therefore, you know, if you take those three guys out of the trade equation, I don't know what kind of big, bold move, unless it's acquiring somebody right. in free agency, which is probably what Andrew will have up his sleeve. Yeah, I would never rule anything out with the way that the NFL offseason has sort of changed over the, the last few years to where huge, crazy things do happen and come out of nowhere. But I, I think the biggest moves that you're going to look back and say, oh, that was significant is going to be, you know, maybe they move on from Christian Kirksey or they move on from Olivier Vernon. But, mm-hmm. but those are things that people have talked about and, and I know we've talked about. Right. Uh, so I don't know. Right now, I, I don't know if there's any bold moves that are on my radar. We'll see. That. I mean, there's a long time. We're still a month away from, from when these things can actually start happening. And a lot of things start to turn once everybody arrives in Indianapolis. And he can also aggressively try to trade for players yeah. in the same way that John Dorsey did. We know that they need upgrades on the offensive line. So he might roll the dice on not only some tackles, uh, but maybe some guards. So you never really know. I, but in terms of those three guys being traded, I, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, and for this upcoming season, the only person, as Mary Kay has been saying, that could even potentially be dealt is Odell Beckham Jr. He's, he's the wild card in the situation. His value remains a bit of a mystery being hurt all year, You know, still getting 1,000 yards. Maybe, maybe he showed some toughness, but he also was playing hurt. You think maybe a third-round pick, but considering what the Browns gave up for him, you're losing on your return right there. So essentially, this core will be back. That's what all signs are pointing towards. But it is fun to speculate. And, Dan, as you said, we're really still a month away from when this stuff can get going. And all it takes is one good trade offer uh, to send someone packing. So uh, that remains to be seen. we got one more question, uh, football insider question here coming. This person would uh, like to be identified, uh, Abe in West Virginia. This is a, a combine question asking, say the Browns don't get an offensive tackle, their first round pick, pick 10, what second round through fifth round offensive tackles are worth keeping an eye on in the combine? Well, Abe, if you're listening, I have wrote about this at length uh, a couple weeks ago, identifying uh, not only the top offensive tackles in this class, but also day two and later guys. Uh, that the Browns can keep an eye on. I think I wrote that about two, three weeks ago, probably three weeks ago now. And even since then, as I've been following, you know, draft people on Twitter, draft Twitter, if you will, uh, these offensive linemen continue to change in how they're projected. So right now I'm going to give you two names, the first being Austin Jackson of USC. I believe he's a junior, either a sophomore or a junior, uh, 6'6", I think he's a little lighter on the like 320 side, but a real athletic prospect who in space makes it very apparent what he struggles in is some, some basic footwork, some pass pro stuff. And that's what you're going to get when you're asking about offensive tackles rounds two through five. You're going to get um, guys that could start potentially day one, but you're going to experience a learning curve and some, some rough, rough patches. And that's what you'd get in Austin Jackson. There's another name. Uh, Josh Jones, uh, Houston offensive tackle. This guy, this is this is a big guy here. If I'm remembering correctly, he's about six six, and I want to say like three sixty, maybe three seventy. He's a real big body that, of course, with that frame, opened up a ton of running lanes and didn't have a issue keeping smaller guys in front of him. And even impressed with his footwork, keeping those more crafty pass rushers 
coming at him. So those are two names to keep an eye on. But as I said at the top, you know, you could go find a mock draft that has Josh Jones going to the Browns at 10 probably or Austin Jackson going at the back end of the first round. So until we get to the combine, until these guys start having pro days, this these, this uh, day one list of tackles is going to remain in flux until it gets solidified, until teams start, you know, really falling for, you know, this is one of our guys or, you know, reports are coming out about certain numbers or interviews or things like that. But what hasn't changed about this class is how deep it is. There's really probably eight guys that could all, you can make a case for going in the first round. And as I've been saying, that hopefully will take care of itself in the evaluation process. But to tie it back to our first question from Fred, it really does point to maybe the Browns not taking a tackle in, in in the first round. I've seen plenty of mocks where three offensive tackles go before pick 10, and are the Browns really going to pick the fourth, quote-unquote, best tackle at number 10? I mean, uh, anyone can tell you that's when everyone's zigging, that's when you zag and try and maximize your value at that pick. So, again, I feel like we've been repeating it, but there just it needs to, there's a lot that has been left unknown so far on this mid-February date. And as we get closer, of course, to the combine and pro days, these offensive linemen will hopefully start taking care of themselves. Um, You guys, I want to talk a little Oscars before we do. Is there anything Browns-related I didn't touch on? Anything you guys want to add? I think we got everything. Yeah, I think we're good. Perfect. Well, let's talk a little movies, all right, y'all? So... If anyone who follows me on Twitter or just in general, I, I really do enjoy the movies. Oscars are one of my favorite nights up there with uh, the Super Bowl and uh, WrestleMania, if you will. I, I haven't shared much of that. That I, I'd be a, I'm a small, a little small WWE fan, but we'll talk about that some <laughs> other time, maybe. But uh, no, the Oscars are a great time, and this year there it was an exciting show on the on the level of maybe uh, Moonlight from a few years ago. Not that they mixed up who won Best Picture, but all, so all of a sudden, about a quarter way through the show, uh, Parasite's director wins Best Director, and it, the momentum has been made that, oh my goodness, Parasite, this foreign film, which I highly recommend everyone seeing. I actually saw it Sunday afternoon right before the Oscars uh, at Regal down the road there in Crocker Park. Beautiful theater. Um <laughs> And it's a, it's a gripping movie. It's a, it's like a it's a thriller towards the end, mixed with um, a, a lighthearted story about a, a middle class to uh, poverty stricken family that ends up taking jobs with um, a very well off family in uh, in South Korea, I believe the movie set. And like any good film, there's twists and turns, and it's it's a fun follow. It becomes a mini kind of home invasion film there. It was some comedic relief. The director had a lot to say about Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino as his inspiration. So he, he really is rooted in film and could not have been a more well-deserving win. And the Oscars were a fun finish. Talking off the air... To my colleagues here, Dan Lobby, America Cabot, I, I know they're not the, the biggest movie goers. That's why I'm, I'm I'm ranting here for a bit. But with that being said, um, Mary Kay, it sounds like you were able to tune in a little bit for the Oscars. Was there anything you enjoyed or anything that stood out to you? Well, first of all, I am a movie goer and oh. I do love movies. <laughs> However, I just have been so dark. I haven't had time to go to a movie in years because the Browns just keep on. Uh, it's this gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. So I just don't really have time to go yeah, to the movies. Yeah, the Mary Kay I know hasn't, <laughs> hasn't got to a movie yet. 
but I will get there. I'm dying to see Judy. My gosh, I can't yep. wait to see Renee Zellweger yep. in Judy. One best actress. Uh, I really want to see Parasite. After I uh, watched the Oscars, I was really... Uh, Really excited to see that. And did you think it should have won ahead of 1917? I did. I did. 1917, a beautiful film. Uh, I saw it in IMAX where everyone should see it. Don't don't be watching these movies on your laptops and your iPhones. They're made for the big screen for a reason. It shot beautifully, but storyline-wise, very plain, very bland. Parasite uh, was the more gripping, captivating movie. It should have won. Yeah, so I can't wait to get out and see some of them. And again, uh, if the Browns would stop... Uh, generating news. It's not going to happen though very You know, clear. maybe I could actually go to the movies too. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I came and sat down and saw this on the script and I'm like, I, I don't know what movies I saw this year. So I Googled like just, just to get a reminder, like 2019 top movies and there's like two of them that I saw and one of them was El Camino, uh, Breaking Bad movie because <laughs> I'm a junkie for all things Breaking Bad. Shout out Netflix. Um, the I watched a movie from 2007 called Hot Rod with uh, Andy Samberg and Bill Hader and and Will Arnett. That's a that saw that for the first time. A that's classic, a classic. It, yeah, classic so, uh, you know, I'm I'm really bad at watching current movies. I did realize though, because I was just curious. I wanted to go back here. I did see almost all like the big movies from 2018. So I'm I'm always just a little bit behind when when it comes to uh, to the movie scene. So I, this time next year, ask me about Parasite. One of these like days, we'll, one of these days, we'll have to get going on what we're watching on Netflix and all of that. We could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> That's a fun Spe- segment. Speaking of, uh, are you watching? Speaking of my Breaking Bad kick, what are we watching? I've been uh, see. I watch not old stuff, but like stuff from like. 20 years ago, we've been randomly rewatching Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, Brian Cranston. Very Brian Cranston is the dad. And you got to love Brian Cranston. Incredible. We just watched the the roller skating episode. For anybody that knows Malcolm <laughs> in the Middle, great. we just oh, watched the roller skating episode that's like a awesome. day or two ago. So I'm watching Shit's Creek right now. I've that's heard that's one. great. Yep. That's a good and one. And I'm really enjoying it. Even though it's silly, okay? When you first start watching it, you think, this is dumb. It, it gives you that dumb and dumber feel at the very sure. beginning. But it's actually very well written and it's smart. And yeah. I'm really, really enjoying it. Now, I, I've talked to like a couple of my friends. Uh, you know, some of them like it. Some of them haven't really liked it. Uh, but my husband and I are uh, just rolling along with it and really enjoying it. Yeah. Oh, and finished up The Good Place. That's a good mm, that put that on your list if you, haven't, oh. if you haven't watched the good place. See, yet. I'm digging this. We might That's be onto something one. here. A little little half baked workshop here, but what are we watching? What are you watching? That yeah. might be a new segment we can bring Absolutely. on the Talk podcast with all the streaming services out there now. It, we're probably going to say something different, and that's that's what keeps us interesting. Dan, I like your point about asking you uh, about Parasite next year at this time because <laughs> like, I'm just I'm a year behind. I'll have my own personal Oscars every single year. So, the the uh, lobbies, you know, just yeah. looking back, <laughs> yeah. it's actually kind of a healthy way to evaluate movies. I think last year Green Book won Best Picture, and when you have a year to step back and look, mm-hmm. it's like okay, maybe that wasn't the best choice. Personally, I thought A Star Is Born was. Uh, the best movie from last year and one that will loved see. a star is born. I just, Look at that. I, was I just, liked, uh, I liked the big sick. Yeah. Oh. That was that good was too last year. Last year too. I liked that one. That was fun. Yeah. No, the, the star is born. Uh, just had that movie feel to it. That it really showtime did. Type classic, of experience. like a classic movie. And I loved the music from it. Shallow, such a great song. And I just listened to yesterday. I was listening to, uh, I was playing it on YouTube in the house and, uh, practicing for karaoke. There you go. Uh, for road trip karaoke. Um, I was playing Shallow and I'll Never Love Again. Yep. 
classics. Such great songs. Yep. No, Grammy nominated songs. Of course, Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper. So look at that. Now I'm going to go back and watch A Star is Born. I think it <laughs> popped up on HBO the other day. Yep. And, so uh, good. Yep. Yep. So, all right, listeners, we're going to get out of here. We've been going for about an hour now. We've we've got, uh, you know, meetings to get to and all this good stuff on a Wednesday. So quick reminder, don't forget to sign up for Football Insider by clicking the blue banner at the top of cleveland.com slash browns. That's how you get your questions on the Orange Brown Talk podcast, exclusive texts from our Browns beat writers, and our daily newsletter. For myself, Dan Lobby, Mary Kay Cabot, this is Ellis Williams signing off. Take care, y'all.